If you're visiting with us this morning, again, we're really glad to have you. We're doing something a little unique during these weeks leading up to Christmas. We're looking at a particular Christmas carol, really a Christmas hymn each one of these weeks. We are not doing that because we believe hymns or Christmas carols are inspired, not at all. We're doing that because we believe some of the best Christmas carols, the best Christmas hymns are founded in Scripture. And these, these uh, uniquely um, special Christmas hymns, they give us a window with which to look through and see the gospel, maybe in a way that we don't normally see when we sing these hymns or when we look at Christmas. So this week, one of the oldest, uh, the last week was probably the oldest, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This week, God rest ye merry gentlemen. The writer of this, this hymn is unknown. We know it was written roughly four to five hundred years ago. It was first published in 1833, but it really didn't come to public attention until Charles Dickens in 1843 wrote and published his famous story, A Christmas Carol. And he wrote this Christmas hymn into his story, A Christmas Carol. And that's really how it came to the public recognition that it has today. Now, how do we see the gospel through a Christmas carol? You know, I really want to focus on the first verse, so let me take just a minute and let me speed through the second and third verses. Not that they're unimportant, but I I really want to focus on the first verse. The second and third verse, I want to show you the biblical foundations of them before we move back to the first verse. The second verse From God, our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same, how that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Where does that come from? That comes from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 2 tells us in in just different words, but that exact story. There were shepherds, Luke writes, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And then verse 3 picks up on the story and continues it on. Fear not then, said the angels, let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright, to free all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. That picks up at verse 10 of Luke chapter 2. The angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now there is so much meat there, but I'm going to overlook that today to come back to the first verse. It's really the first verse that I believe makes this hymn the most compelling Christmas hymn, at least for me personally. I think this first verse distinguishes this hymn, this Christmas carol, from all the other Christmas hymns. Why? Because it focuses on an aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we don't normally hear, that that doesn't seem to get much attention to these days. The aspect of the gospel of how Christ's coming into the world frees us from Satan's power. Look at the first line of the first verse. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Now, first of all, we have to understand that written four to five hundred years ago, even though it was written in English, it was written in what we know of as Elizabethan English. And not all the terms translate over into modern English. And this first verse is 
is a good example of that. There's a couple terms here that if we read them through the lens of how we use English today, we miss the meaning of this line and therefore this verse. Let me pick out first of all the word rest. We hear the word rest, God rest. We hear the word rest and we think of maybe sleep or we think of calm or we think of peace. But that's not the meaning that it's used here. In Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabethan English, rest means to keep. It's a verb. To make. To keep. So the meaning here, as far as it goes into those first couple words, is, is not God put you to sleep or not God calm you, but God keep you. God make you. Now here we got to pick up the next verse. God keep you. God make you. God rest you. Mary. Now Mary, again, is another word that uh, we use differently today. If we use it at all, I guess we use it in Merry Christmas, uh, that is used differently than it, it was at that time. When we think Merry, Merry Christmas, we, we think joyful. We think jovial. We think happy. We think light. Uh, all, the, all the synonyms that would come along with this. But used in Elizabeth English, Elizabethan English, Mary had a different meaning. Mary instead had the meaning of strong or mighty. And let me give you a good example of that. Go back to a story that came from about that same period of time, the story of Robin Hood. Robin Hood, he was feared because he would come and, and into unjust situations with his band of merry men. Did that mean that they were cheerful and jovial? No. They were feared because they were strong. They were feared because they were mighty. So to say Robin Hood and his merry men, Robin Hood and his band of strong fighters, of mighty fighters. Now again, we'll put this all together in just a minute, but there's one more very important part of this first line we need to understand. It's what Derek Thomas calls the Christmas comma. There is a comma in this line. It's either often left out today or it's put in the wrong place today. There is a comma in this line and it doesn't appear after you. God rest you. Pause, Mary gentlemen. It comes after Mary. God rest you, Mary gentlemen. In other words, it's not a description of the object. It's not, it's, its emphasis is not to say the people, the gentlemen that the, the hymn, the carol is addressing are, are to be merry, are to be strong. Instead, it's a description of the action, of what God is doing, of what we appeal God to do. So really, the meaning of this line, when we put this all together, is may God keep you strong, gentlemen and gentlewomen, I think we could add. God rest you merry gentlemen is really God keep you strong, people. How, how, how does God do that? Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is an encouragement and an exhortation to followers of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that the source of our strength, the ability to live out our Christian life, it's not from within us. It's from the Christ who came into the world the first Christmas day. So how does God keep us strong? How does God keep us strong as we abide in Jesus Christ? Well, the second to the last line of the first verse tells us, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Here it is. The part of the Gospel that never gets much focus. 
to save us all from Satan's power. Christ coming into the world at Christmas. This is the aspect of the Gospel that He frees us from Satan's power. That we are under the power of Satan and the Gospel is that Christ came into the world to free us from Satan's power. We see a similar statement in the third verse. Christ the Savior was born to free all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. This is the biblical truth that, that, that we see in 1 John 3.8. The Son of God, Jesus the Christ, came. Came into the world. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. Now maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you're thinking, wait a minute, did he just say the devil? Does he believe that there is a being, a personal being, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, And if you have doubts about that, you're in good company. George Barna, Barna Research Group, has done a lot of polling about this. Even among people who would identify themselves in some sense as Christian, you know, we don't know what's going on inside them, but they would at least claim to be Christian. Barna found out recently that 59% of people who identify themselves as Christians do not believe in a personal being called Satan or Lucifer or the devil. They may believe that that Satan is the personification of evil, that, that Satan in some way stands as a symbol of evil, but not that he is a personal being. Deepak Chopra, that, that new age voice that, that you know, he teaches, he writes, he seems to be you know, one, of the, one of those voices that's out there that in my mind adds so much confusion to our culture. He puts it this way, and I think he encapsulates the way a lot of people think, maybe the way you think this morning. He says, Satan is a primitive, irrational, mythical explanation for what people call evil in the world. In fact, he goes on to say that healthy people do not have any need for Satan. That healthy people understand that so-called evil is part of ourselves. That healthy people reject these ideas of a personal being named Satan as mythical and primitive. And what I would tell you based on my understanding of Scripture, based even on my own experience, I believe that Mr. Chopra is deliberately blind to the reality of evil in this world and the origin of it in a personal spiritual being named Satan or the devil or Lucifer. In fact, I believe with the, with the Puritan Cotton Mather that the only people who doubt that there is a devil are those who are under the influence of the devil. Because that's the first thing the devil attempts to do is to keep his cover up. To keep it, to keep it under wraps that he is a personal being active in the world today. So especially if you're new to this, who is the devil? What, what is this, this character known as Satan or Lucifer. You know, we're given a glimpse of him in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel, what he's doing is he's addressing the proud king of Tyre. He's condemning this this earthly king. But he's doing so by comparing him to Satan. And here's what he writes. And in this we see a description of who Satan is. Ezekiel 28, you are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were an anointed cherub. What's the picture that we get there? The devil, Satan, 
He is a personal, spiritual being created by God, just as you and I were created by God. Although He is a spiritual being, or we are still mortal human beings. What's more, we get here that He was created by God with incredible beauty, with incredible intelligence, with incredible power. And what's more, we see here that He had a unique and exalted role in God's order when He was first created. He was an anointed cherub, whatever that is in God's hierarchy. And in that role, He had, a, he had access. God put Him in the Garden of Eden. He had access to our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, the first human beings. Ezekiel goes on, you were blameless in your ways from the days that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So this supremely beautiful, intelligent, powerful being with this exalted place in God's order became prideful on account of that very thing. His beauty, His intelligence, and His position. And that pride corrupted him, turning him against God. Isaiah adds to the picture in Isaiah 14. Again, Isaiah is addressing a world leader at that time, the king of Babylon, but he's condemning him by comparing him again to Satan. And he writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. You see this picture of this exalted, beautiful, highly intelligent being who becomes prideful, and what does he want to do? Why should God rule? Why should God get to be in that supreme place? I want to be in that supreme place. And whether he thought he could usurp God, or whether he just thought he could set up his own rival kingdom to God, that is exactly what he did. And Isaiah goes on, Satan says, I will ascend from the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. God expelled him from heaven. God cast him down to the earth. And as he was cast down to the earth, I know this is not on the screen, but Revelation 12 tells us that he swept with him a third of the angelic beings. He, he corrupted them. He made them what we would think of as devils or demons. And Revelation 12 says that God cast that one-third of those beings down to earth, condemning them with Satan. So Satan and his forces of corrupted angelic beings, what we think of as devils or demons, they, they operate in, in the realm of this world. Now, we can't see them. They operate at a spiritual level, so we can't see them. We can certainly see their activity though. We're given a picture of this by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's, he's, describing, uh, he's describing me certainly before I knew Jesus Christ. If you're a believer here today, he's describing you before you knew Jesus Christ. You used to live and sin just like the rest of the world. And here's the key line. Obeying the devil. You'd ask me before I knew Jesus Christ and came to Him as Savior and Lord, who are you obeying? I would have said, I'm a free moral agent. You know, I'm not obeying anybody. But the reality is I was obeying the devil. The reality is the same for you 
if you either in the past did not know Christ or don't know Him today. He is, Paul describes, Satan is the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So to the extent that we hold God off at a distance in our lives, that we want to rule and run our own lives our own way without Him, Satan is influencing us. Satan has a hold on us. We are, even if we think we're free moral agents, we are actually under the reign of the devil. And he is there influencing. He is there controlling behind the scenes beneath what is humanly observable. How does Satan exercise his influence, his power over us? number of ways. I'll just lay out five of them for you this morning. First of all, he influences us. He, he controls us by, by deception. Paul describes this writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, that's the days that you and I are living in now, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that comes from demons. Satan influences and controlled by deception. He draws people away from the truth with teaching that twists Scripture, that waters down the truth of Scripture. Think of any of the world religions that you're aware of, the false religions in the world, the cults in the world. Satan influences all of them. Satan is the heart, at the heart of all of them. Even what is thought of today in Christianity in many aspects There are many speakers, there are many authors who are out there challenging the authority of Scripture, who are promoting their own claimed revelations over Scripture, questioning what the Bible teaches about essential topics like like marriage and sexuality. All of these are influenced by Satan. All of these are used by Satan to deceive, to lead people away from the truth, to obscure the truth so that you don't respond to the truth. Secondly, Satan seeks to influence and to control by temptation and affliction. I I really see these coming together, almost one and the same. Either one is, is meant to turn us away from God. We see him tempting even our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 4. Jesus was led into the Spirit, by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And if you know that account, you know that that Satan attempted to exploit his vulnerability. He was hungry. And Satan studies us and his demons study us. They They are students of human nature. They are students of you and I and our uniqueness. And they know when we're where we're vulnerable. They know where we're weak. And they seem seek to exploit those vulnerabilities and those weaknesses to trip us up by tempting us. We also see affliction. Job 2, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job. Affliction affliction can be physical affliction. Affliction can be affliction of our relationships. Affliction can be affliction of our, our circumstances. None of it happens unless God allows it. But to the extent that God permits it, Satan can afflict you and me with suffering. And he does so because he hopes to use what we're experiencing in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of our suffering, to make our hearts bitter towards God, to turn us away from God. This is, again, another way that he seeks to influence and control. Thirdly, 
He seeks to influence and control by what Scripture Ephesians 6 calls flaming arrows. In every situation, this is written to Christians, take the shield of faith with you. With with it, you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Again, Satan knows you're in my fears. You're in my anxieties. He knows what triggers our shame. He knows what can tempt us to despair. He knows what can push us into explosive anger. And he uses the arrows of, arrows of insults, arrows of misunderstandings, arrows of gossip, arrows of arguments to inflame our lust, to inflame our anger, to inflame our shame, to inflame our fear. That's how he seeks to influence and control. Fourth, Satan seeks to influence and control by what the Bible calls oppression. Peter, the Apostle Peter, preaching in Acts chapter 10, preaching about Jesus, one of the aspects of Jesus coming into the world, he preaches is that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. To oppress is to go beyond affliction. To oppress is in the life of someone who does not know yet, yet know Jesus Christ is to, is to really get a hold on them, a bondage on them, body and soul, and to make them miserable. You wonder why some of the greatest figures in, 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 the, in entertainment and, and in our culture end up killing themselves? I can't prove this. But I wonder if it's because when Satan is done with them, using them to influence and corrupt others, he makes them so miserable by his oppression that the only out that they can find is to take their own lives. But Jesus comes to free people from oppression. Jesus dealt with people that he encountered. Maybe we would have perceived them as that somebody who has a severe mental illness, whatever it was. Jesus, as they came to him, freed them from oppression. And Jesus frees people today from demonic bondage. Fifth, Satan seeks to influence and control us by gaining a foothold. And this speaks to you and me if we know Christ as Savior and Lord. If Jesus is really the Savior and Lord of your life, you can't be oppressed in the sense that Satan can possess you, that Satan can gain a bondage over you. But even though he can't possess you, even though he can't get a bondage upon you, he will still seek to gain a foothold in your life. That, that image comes out of Ephesians 4. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, it's a climbing image. You think of, um, you think of you know, Yosemite or, or some other place that climbers go and, and the sheer faces that expert climbers try to ascend. You know, you can't climb up a sheer face unless you can find a foothold, a toehold, a place that, a little crack, a little, a little ledge that somehow you can get a hand and you can get your toes on and you can inch yourself up a little bit further and find another foothold, another, another handhold, another toehold and inch yourself up and that's how climbers get up sheer faces like that in Yosemite. Well, in this example, that's exactly what Satan does. In this example, this particular example, the foothold Paul discusses is sinful anger. And, and what he's saying is basically, yeah, Satan may not be able to possess you, but you know what? If you're prone to anger and you let that anger control you, that gives Satan a way to attach himself to your life, to afflict the relationships 
that, that, that anger comes out in. And you could add that in with any weakness. You could add that in in, in the ways that, that were tempted by lust. You could fill in the blank with whatever it is that is your particular vulnerability or weakness. What gives Satan power and influence over us? I mean, why is it that he is able to do this? Well, again, this brings us back to our Christmas hymn, our Christmas carol for today. It's what the Christmas carol here hints at with its next line. To save us all from Satan's power, here it is, when we had gone astray. Why does Satan have influence and control over us? Because we have gone astray. This is the biblical image from Isaiah 53.6 that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. We've done what Adam and Eve done in the garden. We're no different than them. If we'd been put in their place, the very same outcome would have resulted. We naturally want to run our own lives, our own way without God. If God enables us to live the life like we want to live it, oh, that, that's great, and we'll, we'll add Him on in the back. But if He doesn't, get out of the way, God. That's our natural bent. Now, some of us are a little better at presenting that. We make that a little more socially acceptable, but that really is in the heart of every one of us. And that's a picture of like a dumb sheep going astray, leaving the shepherd who loves it, who cares for it, who leads it, and going its own way, usually to the edge of a cliff. Romans says, includes all of us in this, by the way, Romans 3, there is no one who seeks God. You know, I don't have it within me to naturally say, I know it's good. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after God. That's, that's not within any of us. All have turned away. We turn away from God, and that is the definition of going astray. And again, when we turn away from God, when we go astray, we don't become free moral agents. We may think that we're free and running our own lives, but the, the spiritual reality of what's actually going on when we think we're running life our own way without Him is described in Colossians 1.13, that we're actually in the domain of darkness. It's kind of like you know what Bob Dylan used to sing, you got to serve somebody. And you either serve the devil or you serve the Lord. You're either in the domain of darkness under Satan's influence or you're in the kingdom of the Son under Christ's influence. There's no middle ground. Salvation, therefore, you know, I love this first Colossians 1.13 of how He delivered us because salvation, I, I picture it in my mind like a, a, a spiritual hostage rescue mission. You know, that, that I was a prisoner of war held hostage by Satan in the domain of darkness. And Jesus breaks into that darkness and frees me and takes me out of that into the kingdom of light, into his kingdom where there is life and there is freedom and there is peace. Well, the good news of Christmas celebrated in this hymn is that Jesus Christ came to save us from Satan's power when we had gone astray. I want you to hear that this morning, that it really is true that Jesus can deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of His Son. There's, there's no place that's too dark. There's no place in the domain of darkness that He can't free you from. Acts 26.18 says, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, 
you can turn from darkness to light. You can turn from the power of Satan to God. Not in your own strength, but as He rescues you. And you can receive forgiveness for your sins, the ways that you have gone astray. Church, all this is open to you. This is an, this is an open offer to you even this morning. I, I don't know who you are this morning. I don't know those of you who are here and, and you know this and, and this is really what is already in your heart. And those of you who maybe, whether you've gone to church many years or this is your first time, whether this is all new to you, the reality is this Christmas can be a new Christmas because this is an open offer to you even this morning. You can respond to the promise of the gospel that's encapsulated in the third verse of this hymn. Jesus Christ frees all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. Jesus Christ will free you this morning if you trust in Him from Satan's power and might. How do you trust in Him? Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, if you acknowledge that He is who He said He is, He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is the God-man coming to the world. If you acknowledge what He did for you on the cross, taking all of your sin upon Himself, paying the penalty for that, imputing, pouring out all His righteousness, His perfect righteousness, to you, if that's where you put your confidence of where you stand before God, you can be saved. That's what it means to confess Him with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now this hymn is not just to those who, who, who don't know Christ. How about you who have already turned to Christ? How about those of us who are, are Christians already and we're seeking to abide in Him? This hymn speaks to us as well. This speaks to you this morning. Because as you trust in Him, he makes you strong. Remember the meaning of Mary? He makes you strong to stand against Satan's attempts to deceive you, to stand against Satan's attempts to tempt you, to inflame you, to gain a foothold in your life. James 4 tells us how we abide in Christ's strength. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yeah, it's true that Satanic attacks don't end when you become a Christian. That he still seeks to deceive and to, to, to tempt and to gain a foothold in your life. But through the strength of Christ, as we stay strong in the strength of His might, we can, by submitting to the Lord, we can resist Him. We can, even in the middle of a temp temptation, even in the middle of affliction, we can cry out to Him and He rescues us and He saves us. Ephesians 6.11 tells us how God equips us. He gives us the equipment to abide in Christ's strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. That as you trust in Christ, He equips you. He gives us the belt of truth. He gives us the breastplate of righteousness. He gives us the good news of peace. He gives us the shield of faith. He gives us the helmet of salvation. He gives us the sword of the Word of God. In church, the more we grow in Christ, the more we need to grow in our understanding of each of these so that in the midst of temptation, in the midst of affliction, we can put these on and we can stand firm. We can be merry. We can be strong. 
So Christmas really is about the truth that Christ, our Savior, was sent to earth, was born to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. And that truth is truly, as the chorus says, tidings, good news of comfort and joy. It is the good news that the gospel that brings us, that frees us, brings us joy and peace. Just one last thing that brings us these tidings of comfort and joy. Satan's reign, Satan's power, Satan's influence, it will not continue forever. Revelation 12 tells us, it tells us looking at it in real time as a prophecy, but it tells us what is one day to come. Revelation 12.11, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As Martin Luther said, lo, his doom is sure. There is an end date on his influence and his control. There is the day that we look forward to when Satan's influence, his power in this world will be totally destroyed and we will be freed from that forever. Do you trust in Christ this morning? Do you know this one who not only forgives your sins, but saves you from Satan's power? No matter what you come from in your background, no matter what has been going on in your life, you are not beyond saving. There is no place in the domain of darkness that is too deep for him to reach in and rescue you from. We respond even this morning to, to the open offer of salvation. And for those of us who have, and we know the freedom, and we know the life-changing work of Jesus Christ in our lives, when we come into those periods where we're discouraged by temptation and how often we fall, or we're discouraged by the affliction that comes in our lives, or we're discouraged or despairing by any other thing, here is the call. Be strong in Him and in the strength of His might. God, make you strong, good people. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for um, inspiring the Scripture that inspired this hymn writer, whoever he or she was. We thank you for this unique window, this lens of the Gospel that highlights, again, what we don't often hear not only did you send Jesus to forgive sins, not only did you send Jesus to show us how to live, but you sent Jesus to free us from Satan's power and might. You sent Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. And I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here this morning, whether they've been coming to church for years or this is their first time, if they don't know that freedom, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts, moving them to respond even today to cry out to You. Lord, for those of us who have walked in abiding in You for whether it's been a week or 50 years or whatever it is, Lord, I pray that this hymn too would encourage us as we go through temptation, as we go through affliction, as we go through all the difficult things in life. Make us strong in You, Jesus, and in the strength of Your might. We pray this in Your name. We pray. Amen.